This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. And welcome to the City of God podcast, where we are weekly discussing today's biggest cultural issues all through the lens of God's infallible word. My name is Rob Pacienza, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and friend, John Rabe. John, great to see you. It's great to see you, Rob. I always enjoy our conversations with each other and with our guests, and, and we have another excellent one today. Very frequently on this podcast, we talk about progressive Christianity, and we need to do that because it's making in roads. It's unbiblical, and yet it's co-opting many of our institutions and even many of our churches with these woke ideas that are infiltrating the church. Well, today we have a, a guest who actually experienced that firsthand at her own church, and I have a feeling that a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with uh, with today's guest, who has become very well-known, very uh, well-spoken and outspoken on some of the important issues of our day and how to communicate them in our families and to our children as well. Absolutely. That's uh, no stranger to uh, our ministry, but that's Elisa Childers, who we will be interviewing today. Uh, Lisa has uh, been on our programming before, on our television programming, on our documentary specials, and we've had her down to the church multiple times to talk about her testimony. And one of the things I love about Elisa is she not only brings to the table uh, a, a conversation that's needed, talking about what's happening with progressive Christianity and, and people that are out there trying to deconstruct their faith. She, she was one of them. Uh, she, she, her testimony is one where, as you said, was in a church that was uh, advancing the agenda of progressive Christianity. She found herself deconstructing her faith. So she not only has the ability to talk about it from a, uh, the, the theory of progressive Christianity and the ideology of progressive Christianity, she has firsthand experience of what it meant to live through that experience, to find herself deconstructing her faith, and ultimately realizing that this is ultimately just going to lead to atheism. Until finally, God's grace uh, uh, just uh, you know opened her eyes and softened her heart to see what was really happening with this satanic agenda. Elisa is the author of multiple books, including uh, Another Gospel, which exposes the lies of progressive Christianity, and her latest book is Live Your Truth and Other Lies, which is a great resource uh, which exposes the progressive lies in the era of of uh, the so-called uh, my truth and relative truth. Right. And you do you, and uh, you know we are uh, ultimately the uh, definers of truth instead of God. And she really helps to expose not only the the lie of that ideology, but how dangerous and toxic it is yeah. uh, to our society. I love that title, "Live Your Truth and Other Lies." Yes, exactly. uh, which is exactly right. You know, the thing is, I've been familiar with Elisa because of her great work on these sorts of issues. She has her own podcast; it's terrific. Um, she does she does great work. I, I'm not well connected on these sort of things. And so I, I told my wife after we were done, oh, we interviewed Elisa Childers today. Do you know her? And it turns out that Elisa Childers was a well-known pop, a Christian pop yep. star in her early 20s. What, uh, what was Zoe Girl? Zoe Girl. Zoe Girl. The, there you I, go. I, I'm yeah. not familiar with such things. Yep. I would have been, you know, I, that yep. would have missed me. But uh, everybody that I've talked to is like, oh yeah, Zoe Girl, Zoe Girl. Yeah. So yeah, she's got quite the story. Yeah, she really yeah. does. But she's yep. a, 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 was just such a well-spoken, articulate, and passionate yeah 
advocate for biblical Christianity. It was great talking to Absolutely. her. Absolutely. So always a pleasure to interview Elisa. We will be having her down uh, to Fort Lauderdale for the 2024 Kingdom Come Conference, which will be March 14th through 16th. I do believe she's uh, uh, the headliner the first night on Thursday nice. night. So she'll be uh, kicking things off as we discuss what it means to stand for truth in an upside down world. So uh, without further ado, here is our City of God podcast interview with Elisa Childers. Elisa Childers, so good to have you on the City of God podcast. And for our audience, uh, you are going to be down in Fort Lauderdale in 2024 at the Kingdom Come Conference, which is March 14th through 16th. This will be your third time uh, at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church uh, for our uh, Kingdom Come Conference, and so delighted to have you back. But on this episode of City of God podcast, want to uh, dive into uh, your story, your testimony, and tell us a little bit about uh, your story of sitting under a progressive pastor and how that ultimately helped you confront the lies of deconstructionism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I feel you guys are kind of like a home away from home now. <laughs> exactly. So I'm looking forward to 2024. Uh, but yeah, so my story goes back to uh, over 10 years ago, my husband and I started attending a church just right in the heart of the Bible Belt where we live. And we really loved this church. And there were a couple of things about it that really attracted us. It was um, the community. They did community really well. And also the pastor had this more intellectual approach to his sermons. And my husband and I grew up in more of a charismatic background, so we weren't really used to that. And so we really loved it. And after about eight months of attending that church, the pastor invited me to become uh, or to be a part of a smaller group study. He said it was kind of like seminary. You go through this class and you'll have a seminary level education. Now, what I didn't know at the time, which I would only find out really a couple of years ago when he made a Facebook video basically admitting all of this, but he had already been through the process of deconstruction. So he had already deconstructed his faith mm. and he was attempting to get his parishioners into deconstruction so that he could convert them to progressive Christianity. He he said that outright in this Facebook video. And I, looking back on it now, I can see that that was the case because virtually every core belief that I'd ever held about Jesus and God, and, and especially about the Bible, these things were picked apart. They were explained away. They were deconstructed. And so while I was in the class with him, I would try to debate him. I would go home and I Google things and try to come back and answer the things he was saying. But it wasn't until we left the class and we left the church that all of those doubts that he had sown and and the material we were reading and engaging with began to take root in my own heart and grew. And then it, it really propelled me into my own faith, faith crisis that I used to use the word deconstruction to describe because it was the best word I had. But after really living in that space of deconstruction, researching for a book, I thought, you know, that's actually not what happened. I think I I came up to the edge of agnosticism, but I was really wanting to know what was true. And so the Lord and his faithfulness led me to study for years and rebuilt my faith. And uh, so I'm really thankful for that. It's a disturbing thing, of course, when someone who's tasked with your spiritual leadership is in the process of losing their own faith or uh, has exchanged that faith for something that maybe looks and sounds a little bit like it, but is something else altogether. And we'll deal with a couple of varieties of that as we go, including wokeness and so forth. But uh, a deconstructing pastor, what were 
some of the tip-offs? What were some of those things that raised your alarm bells when uh, when you were hearing them that maybe you couldn't quite put your finger on it, but you saw eh, there seems to be a problem here? Right. Well, there was a lot of discussion about reframing Christianity for the current culture. And they didn't just mean in methodology. They were going into the core doctrines. And so, you know, at first I was kind of excited, like, oh, this will be great. You know, we can, uh, I can really recapture the intellectual side of my faith. I'd never really done that journey before. But it wasn't just rethinking secondary doctrines. This was like, I mean, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus was being referred to as cosmic child abuse. There was so much being done mm. to deconstruct the Bible. The pastor, by the end, really had me intellectually convinced, even though my heart wasn't convinced, but intellectually convinced that we don't even know who wrote the Bible. Most of the characters that it talks about probably didn't even really exist. There's tons of contradictions. And then, of course, I knew nothing of textual criticism in the manuscript tradition at that time. So he was talking about all these mistakes in the manuscripts, and I just didn't know what to do with all of that. So it, was, uh, it wasn't even so much a subtle, like, hmm, something seems off. It was like a radical assault on my faith. But the thing that I think kept me confused is I would ask him about it. I would say, this is very confusing for me because this book you're having us read really seems to recast Jesus as just a human and not God. And the pastor was so good at reassuring me, oh, no, you know, we're, uh, no, it's not doing that. And it, it's all, it's all good. Every He would just smooth it over. And then on Sunday, his sermons would be very what at the, now I'd, I'd be curious to listen to them now that I've done all this work and maybe I would I would see more than I saw then but they seemed very biblical very orthodox very historically christian lots mm. of scripture but then in this midweek class it was like a completely different story so I was very confused I was thinking is he trying to teach us how to spot deception what is going on so he he kind of kept me in a place of confusion about it um that that made me hang on and keep keep trying again if that makes sense Lisa, in uh, our secular age currently, uh, truth is under attack and truth is being redefined. And I think we could even say that truth is being disguised uh, in the modern lies. What are some of those modern lies that are out there right now that are rampant in an increasingly secular culture uh, that really yeah. need to be exposed? Well, they take the form of slogans that sound really positive. They sound life affirming. It's the thing you'd want to say to somebody if they're struggling or having a hard time. So I have a lot of mercy for people who might adopt one of these slogans. But what people and, and I'll mention a few in a moment, but what people really need to understand is that so many of these slogans, well, I'll just say a few like things like you're perfect just as you are. Mm -hmm. Follow your heart. Um you were born good. You know, you need to trust your good heart. God just wants you to be happy. Uh, those kinds of slogans, they sound good, but they're really built upon, I think, two big lies that our culture has adopted. And one is the idea that truth is really just something you create inside yourself. It's not something that is outside of you and independent of your opinion or beliefs. And then the second one is really a rejection of the doctrine of original sin, the idea that humans are inherently sinful. So according to culture, if you dig down inside of yourself, what you're going to find down there is something good like your desires, the things you want, your voc your dreams for your vocation or romantic fulfillment. These are the kinds of things that are your identity, according to culture, because they're assuming that you are the truth maker and that what you find is going to be good. 
And so you should identify those desires and live them out. And so that's really where I think all of these slogans come from. Even take the one that we see so often. It seems so benign and so positive and, you know, kind of morally neutral. You are enough. I am enough. And I get it. If somebody's had lies spoken over them, maybe they've been told you'll never amount to anything, you're no good, and you say, you know, you're enough. And I get it why that would feel good to say that to somebody. But that really puts a burden on people because essentially what you're telling someone is you have to fix all the problems that you created. And it's um, so it puts a burden on people to think that all the tools you have, all the tools you need to be fixed or reconciled or, or, be made whole are found within yourself. Because obviously as Christians, we know that's not found within yourself. That's found outside of yourself. And that's found in Jesus. Yeah. I, I see so much of this too, uh, Lisa, when I'm, uh, you know, I, I look on social media, for instance, and I see people who grew up in the church who are are still professing Christians and, and will post uh, some Christian things. But then alongside it will post exactly the sorts of things that you're talking about is this sort of uh, syncretistic amalgam of of new age and Christianity and several other things. Um, it, it seems that many of us are no longer having our faith primarily formed within the church, but through media, through social media, through these other avenues. And that raises a real challenge for us as parents, as pastors, as as people who care about the spiritual well-being of our of our people, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's a great point. In fact, I was making a note here because that's such a great point you're making about social media because there's this whole cottage industry of, you might even call it quote-unquote Christian dis discipleship, although it's not really that, but you have all of these pop-level influencers that have these seemingly great lives because you can curate a life for mm -hmm. yourself on Instagram that nobody really can see what's really going on. And you can make it look like you've got all this happiness, all this joy, everything's great. And these are the people that are discipling many people in the church pews. So in, on one hand, you have maybe an elder board or the pastors of the church who have never even heard of the person who's discipling, say, 60 or to 70 percent of the women in their church. And yet the influence that this person has is incalculable mm. because unlike the pastor who might be able to connect maybe weekly with the parishioners or, or you know, certainly not every day with everyone, you have this influencer who connects Every day, every single day, many times going live on their Instagram pages and even on TikTok and all these places. So people are really getting their idea of what religion and morality should be from these pop level influencers that are involved in their lives. And you begin to feel like these people are your family. You begin to feel like you know them and that they're, they care about you and that you're friends. And so I, I've seen so many people be discipled by some of these pages and then you have these, the pastors going, what happened? What happened to all the people in my pews who now are, like you said, the syncretism, they're pulling in some Bible verses, maybe some crystals, some meditations, some positive affirmations, just cobbling together something that works for them, because that's the approach to religion that most of our culture has. It's very pragmatic, just find what works for you. But obviously, Christianity doesn't work that way. Elisa, whether it was liberal Christianity in the early 20th century or progressive Christianity today in the 21st century, many proponents of whether it's liberal Christianity or progressive Christianity have always said, if we're going to rescue Christianity and in the name of and the spirit of cultural relevance, we've got to we, we've got to change our approach. We've got to change our beliefs. What would you say to those that are, whether it's from the pulpit or other ministry thought leaders, that in the name of cultural relevance, 
relevance and accommodation, trying to twist the truths of historic Christianity. Mm. Yeah. And I see you see so much of that right now. I one of the things that really sort of disturbs me that I'm observing in evangelical culture right now is this sort of hand wringing over wanting the world to to like us. And of course, we don't want to be jerks, right? We don't mm-hmm. want to be persecuted or rejected because we're just being mean. But ultimately, the gospel has a very strong effect. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says, we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. And I love that image because what it really tells us is that the gospel has a smell. And if you live the gospel, if you preach the gospel, if you're speaking the gospel, you're going to have a smell too. And Paul said to those who are being saved, it smells like life, but to those who are perishing, it smells like death. And that's the effect that the gospel has. And so all this hand wringing over, oh, we we need, you know, to re you hear that things like we need to recapture our witness. And we, of course we do. We are the salt and light we are salt and light in our culture and we should be doing what we can to redeem our culture. But ultimately I was talking to my kids about this. Salt does a lot of things. I mean, it'll heal wounds, but it stings first, right? It's not comfortable and salt preserves and there, and light will cause darkness to scatter. You know, I remember being in this um, room, I don't know if I was on a mission trip or what, and the light went on and all these cockroaches just started scattering everywhere. I'm sure they didn't like that we turned the light on. So being salt and light doesn't mean that everybody's always going to like us. They might even think we're bigoted and mean and all of these other words they use to describe us. But our job is to be faithful to the gospel, knowing that we're going to really stink to some people, but Mm. to those who are being saved, it's going to be like, oh, this is, this smells good. I want more of this. And so we have to stop worrying about what culture thinks about us and really think about just being faithful disciples of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good word. Absolutely. And that, that conflict is more pronounced now than it than it once was. I mean, throughout church history, of course, you have periods of, of even hardcore persecution where the, the church is opposed. But we American Christians had a, a rather lengthy run of time where we were sort of that worldview majority where even if everyone was not a professing Christian, our beliefs were sort of the, the de facto national mood of things. Um, but that has changed. Changed uh, certainly over the past several decades, but I, and I would argue that it's changed even radically more in the past decade. Um, we just sort of have to be ready for the fact that we are going to. I love the way that you put it, working off of Paul. That that stink to some people is going to be even stronger than it once was. And um, if we're wanting to be liked, it's really going to be a tough go now. What what needs to be our attitude in a in a culture that is growing increasingly? hostile towards basic Christian beliefs. Well, you put that very well, because I think we have enjoyed a certain amount of acceptance of just general Christian morality. Obviously, it's not always been in step with culture, but it's it's not like it is today. And it is radically changing. I, I agree with you even radically over the last 10 years, but maybe even just over the past four or five mm-hmm. years, it's accelerated and it's accelerating. In fact, I've I've told audiences when I speak, I truly think I, mean, I could be wrong about this, but I think it's highly possible that Gen Z and especially the generation coming up behind them might be the first generation in American history to actually be real persecuted, like in a legitimate way, not just, you know, getting unfriended on Facebook or something, <laughs> but actually growing up under persecution, which actually excites me because I know that they have the same Holy Spirit that we have all had 
uh, from the beginning and the church has had in the same word of God. So I'm very excited and optimistic about Gen Z and what's coming after them. But you're right. There is this um, hostility now to Christian morality in in many avenues. And I think that for Christians, we just have to be ready for that. We are now a worldview minority. We've been the majority and I think this is something we need to teach our kids. We need our kids to understand that when you choose to follow Jesus, this is not what most people believe right now in our culture. This is not the way most people live. Even people who might use the word Christian and might even use the word evangelical, that doesn't necessarily mean they're following Jesus. And so what it means to follow Jesus means that you're in the minority. You are not going to be the, you know, the have the popular opinion and to inoculate our kids with that information so that they can be prepared to live in a culture that is growing more hostile to God. So let's stay on the topic of next generation. Uh, Lisa, you're a mom. Uh, I have two children at home. And when we think about Gen Z and the generations to follow, there are so many issues that they're facing right now and will continue to face. In your opinion, I know this is a hard question, What what is one of the top challenges that this next generation is going to face? When it, when it comes to particular ideologies being advanced by a secular culture. Yeah. Oh, well, I think without question, there's a clear winner in that sexuality and gender. Mm-hmm. So I know for my kids, my kids are almost 15 and 12. That is the number one thing they're confronted with everywhere they go. And even if you shelter your kids, even if you keep your, if you homeschool your kids and they only go to church, they're still going to hear it. Here's a perfect example. I was at a very conservative church speaking for a women's conference, and I brought my daughter with me. Now, she was probably 9 or 10 at the time. or No, probably 10, 10 or 11. And uh, they had a little youth event happening at the same time. And she said, hey, can I go to the youth event? I said, sure. So while I was speaking to the women, she went to the youth event, and she came back and she said, mom, what are pronouns? And I, and I hadn't really talked with her about that yet. So we, I explained, and I asked her, why, why are you asking that? She said, well, the youth leader asked me what my pronouns are. Now, mm. this was a conservative wow. Christian church that brought That's me amazing. in to speak, you know. And it turns out it was a guest kind of volunteer situation. Um, so, I, you know, I don't hold it against the church, but it happened. And my daughter didn't know what the person meant. She didn't know how to answer. And so I think that's something we really have to equip our kids with because it is every, even among Gen Z and even among church kids asking pronouns that it's almost like the, hi, how are you of my generation? Like, Hey, what's up? (laughs) Hey, what are your pronouns? (laughs) And so they have to be prepared to answer these things. And that is absolutely without question, the number one thing they're facing. So what does that look like practically? So you're sitting around the dining room table, you're having this conversation about what happened uh, while you were traveling and speaking. What, What are some of the, for our parents and grandparents watching this podcast, how do you initiate that conversation? What are the what are the types of things that you're talking about to to really prepare them so they're not taken off guard? Right. Well, I, I do think that one of the things Christians parents are going to have to kind of embrace, even though it's so counterintuitive, is that we really need to be the first people to introduce these topics to our kids, which today means we have to start way earlier. Hmm. Now, the good news about things like sex and gender, not I'm not talking about sexuality, but even just take male and female. This is something you can start instilling at a very, very, very young age. Mommies and daddies, you can use the words. This is a man. This is a woman. Boy, this is a girl. And really kind of concretize those categories, even in the minds of very, very young kids, even before we get to the more complicated conversations of, say, sexuality. 
But I do think that even as counterintuitive as it is, parents need to know you cannot shelter your kids from this. So be the expert in their minds. And you can become the expert by being the first person to introduce it. So I think a great way is depending on your kid's age and maturity level, that's going to be different. That's different for both of my kids. But I might say, hey, you know, have you ever heard this word or have you ever been asked this question? And if they say, no, what's that about? Oh my goodness, what a great opportunity to say, well, we're living in a culture that has really changed a whole lot and explain, you know, you know, and I think honestly for children, especially I've observed that it's a relief to them, even just to be told, Hey, your body, your anatomy, your biology is what determines whether you're a boy or a girl. So whether you like this color or that color, or you like your hair short or long, that's not what decides your your gender, right? And I don't even, almost don't even like using the word gender anymore because that means something so different in right. today's culture. But you know that your sex basically that's what determines your sex is. Um, so if you you know like my daughter prefers to wear clothes that are a little more baggy, but that's fine. That doesn't determine your sex. Your body determines that. Your create you know your creator and designer determines that. So you don't need to worry about that because I think a lot of kids think, oh, if I'm a girl who's maybe a little bit more of what we used to call a tomboy, then, oh, I must be a boy. That's what we would tell girls today. I mean, culture would. And so even just solidifying those categories and say, hey, there are people who think you can change your gender. I'm going to tell you why you can't. You can't do it. You know, you can try to appear like the other sex, but here's, you know, and it's and honestly, I, I've had great success with this with my own kids, just having open conversations and, hey, where do you see this? Does anybody talk about this at school? And, um, and you know, sometimes they don't really want to talk about it. But if you start young and you open the conversation and they know, oh, mom and dad are not going to freak out about this if we talk about it. I don't have to go to Google. Mom will give me a straight answer. I think there's just almost nothing better we can do for our kids on that front than to introduce the topics and then just ask questions like, Hey, do any of your friends ever ask for your pronouns? What do you, what do you say? How are you thinking that through? Because my daughter has thought that question through in different ways as she's encountered it. And um, it's it's been interesting to see how even the Holy Spirit, you know, and, and her being engaged with the word of God, her response to some of these things, and even the courage and boldness I've seen in her that I frankly didn't really expect. So trust that you, your kid, you know, if your kid's a Christian, they have the same Holy Spirit you do. And sometimes I think we underestimate that. That's super helpful. It is. Amen. And, uh, I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for anyone who is raising younger children right now. Uh, you know, my own children, uh, I largely missed the social media era as they were growing up. Uh, we did catch the tail end of it, but the majority of their childhood was without it. Um, and, 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 Parents now are parenting children in just a completely different era. My parents grew up with television and radio. I grew up with television and radio. It wasn't that much different, but we are parenting children in an entirely different situation now. I know social media, which we touched on a little bit earlier, plays such a huge part in these sex and gender issues, teaching children, hey, maybe this is what you are. Maybe that's what you are. How realistically does a Christian parent uh, counteract the effects of social media? How do we parent in a social media era when it does not seem reasonable to just lock them in a room? It doesn't seem possible that we can just somehow completely shield them till they're 18. How, how do we get through this? Well, I, I don't know if my view on this might be viewed as a bit radical, but I just, we do not have social, the kids are not allowed to have social media. It's just Amen. not... Mm -hmm. on the table at all. So good for you. Um, what we've seen from the even the social contagion aspect where, you know, 
to have legitimate gender dysphoria, this used to affect a very, very small percentage of the population. I think something around 1%, even less than that, and mostly men. Whereas today we're seeing this radical increase in young girls and it's a social contagion that's largely coming through social media. So I would really strongly advise parents to not allow social media. You know, my husband and I have navigated the whole phone thing. I know every parent, it's so hard to, to figure out how to do that stuff, but my daughter does have a phone, but she doesn't have access to the internet. She can't mm. search on any search engines. So if she wants to do that, she has to do that with us on one of our phones or on a computer that's not in, you know, private. And she, you know, they have really, that's the good thing about some of these smartphones now. I, I We started with a dumb phone because I thought that would be the way to go, but that, that has its own problems. You know, they can still spam them in their text. But when we got the smartphone, they have a lot of really good parental lockdowns where, you know, you can, I have to input the contacts into her phone. She can't just input anybody's phone number. I have to put it in with a code. Um, I can shut her whole phone down from right here, right now, if I mm -hmm. want to. And she can't download apps. So all of this, you know, she, there's, and then, you know, kids find little workarounds here and there, that's for sure. <laughs> but discipling them and how to have one of these, I think is really important because, they're like you said, they're going to turn 18. And as soon as they have a job and money, they're going to go buy a phone. So I'd rather take a few years and teach them how to use it properly as best we can. And slowly as they show responsibility, maybe give a little more freedom here and there. But um, I, I just think more than ever, parents need to stay totally engaged all the time. This is like a 24 seven discipleship situation. And we're going to, I'm going to, I'm sure look back and go, oh, I wish I would have done that different. Maybe I wish I would have waited a couple years to do that. I'm sure that that will be the case, but we we've really found a lot of success with this just to be like, look, and I think too, because it's such a skeptical culture with our kids, I've really drilled it into my own kids too, that your relationship with God is your own. I don't, I don't want you to be a Christian because I am. I want you to be a Christian because you think it's true. And because you have truly for yourself called on the name of the Lord and trusted in Jesus. And so don't feel pressure from me to say that you're doing that just because it'll make me happy. I want you to investigate for yourself and to give them that kind of freedom too, I think is important, especially in a skeptical culture where kids are just asking different questions. I remember when I was a kid reading the Bible and I got to the part where they crossed the Red Sea, my question was, what was that like? You know, did you see the fish on the side and all of that stuff? When my kids read it for the first time when we were reading it, my daughter goes, did that really happen? And that's really reflective wow. of the culture she's growing mm, up in. Yeah, what a shift. Mm. That's a great answer that you just gave. I always remind our congregation that your children will be discipled. The question is by what and by whom? And I just love your passion for returning discipleship to where it should have always been in the first place. God has designed the family to be the foundational sphere of a flourishing society and just love your passion and your commitment to call parents to return to that call, to not outsource discipleship to mm -hmm. not even to the church or to your local yeah. youth group like that. These are conversations that should be happening at the dining room table in your living room uh, as Deuteronomy 6. Uh, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, we need to be discipling our children's hearts. Well, Elisa, thank you so much for coming on the City of God podcast today. Can't wait to have you back in Fort Lauderdale uh, to the Kingdom Come Conference, which will be March 14th through 16th. Actually, Elisa is kicking off the conference on Thursday night. 
So looking forward to hearing from her. The topic will be standing for truth in an upside down world. And I know you will have a timely and relevant message for those that are attending the Kingdom Con conference. So thank you so much, Elisa. God bless you and your ministry. And we thank God for your voice. Oh, thanks. Right back at you. Thankful to be on and what a pleasure. God bless you. Thank you so much for either watching or listening to the City of God podcast today and our interview with Elisa Childers. If you are blessed and encouraged by the interview today, I pray that you would pass this interview along to family and friends and uh, introduce them to the City of God podcast. And as always, thank you for joining us. And until next time, may God richly bless you. The City of God podcast is produced by Coral Ridge Ministries and made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. Visit us at cityofgodpodcast.com to access all of our previous episodes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. A full video version of this podcast is available on YouTube. This is the City of God Podcast, where Christ meets culture.